0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
1: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
0: Hey guys, I'm Kaylee Shore, and this is Too Much To Say. Okay, so this is part two of True Crime Christmas, um, and I don't mean true crime as in the uh, TikTok thing where it's like, her head was cut off, her legs were cut off. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but if you have, it's funny. That's all the kind of true crime I'm talking about this week, um, or in general. kind of want to focus on some more... It's like, v- just sheer pure evil and violence is like rather boring. It's like, you know if it's just a serial killer who just cuts people's heads off, it's like, I mean, not like it's entertainment, but I, I kind of, you know, I struggle with the concept of true crime because it shouldn't be entertainment to, you know, hear about people being murdered. However, this one is something I'm very passionate about. And, um, I mean, yeah, I guess you could consider them serial killers. Cause I think, um, 500,000 people have died as a result of what they've done, but this is very educational. It's important to know. And, um, it helps you understand the extent of the opioid epidemic. So let's get into true crime Christmas Part Two: The Empire Oxycontin Built. So starting at the very beginning, um, Arthur Raymond and Mortimer Sackler are three brothers, and they all got into the ph- like into the pharmaceutical world. Um, but they were originally born with no money. Their parents were Jewish immigrants. They lived in new york city and their dad had some concept that they had to be doctors so they all became doctors um and they went and worked at the same psychiatric hospital together now to give credit where credit is due they were both really instrumental in treating um different forms of mental illness at that time when lobotomies and electroshock therapy were just like people's first method of action they started giving um people with these different um diseases like schizophrenia they started giving them Histamines, which are a rather safe drug, and it just saved a lot of people from getting their heads drilled. So that was where they kind of earned their reputation and learned about being doctors. So after a good bit of time, they were very, very driven and very motivated. And Arthur was widely regarded as the patriarch. I mean, he kind of bossed around his brothers, he was kind of the final say on whatever the family was doing, it was very kind of like he was the president of the Sackler family. So in 1952, um, Mortimer bought a company called Purdue Pharma, and they mostly dealt in laxatives and earwax remover. It was not a very glamorous company. And um, Arthur started this thing in 1960 called the Medical Tribune, which sounds like it would be a you know, like a scientific American kind of of thing, right? Like it'd be like a, a magazine about medicine. But what it really was, was, um, a pharmaceutical advertising direct to doctors, like catalog almost. So allegedly it reached almost a million doctors in 20 different countries. And it was, um, kind of the be all end all for learning about new medicine. But the problem is people were paying for that information. So the, information you're getting to educate yourself as a doctor about this prescription drug is the only thing you're getting is from people who made it. There's no non-biased sources. And a journalist at some point like dove into this because they were marketing a drug called Librium, which is a benzodiazepine. I always struggle with that word, but, um, it's a similar to Valium and Arthur was really instrumental in marketing that through the medical tribune. And, um, he uh th- this journalist like went through stuff in the Medical Tribune, and there was an advertisement and it had all these different doctors' business cards on it, and it was like these are doctors who approve of this drug and and you should use it because look at all these other doctors who are doing it. This is trusted and this journalist was like, "Well, I'm just gonna like look these people up. I'm gonna call them and none of them were real people. they were just fucking totally fake. Business cards that were used purely as advertisement. And, like, I don't think there's any rules against that because it's an advertisement and there's probably really fine print or whatever, but, like, they just sucked. There was a lot of drama with Arthur Sackler as well. Um, one of the most bizarre facts about his personal life was he, um, there were at one time three Mrs. Arthur Sacklers hanging around the world one was his ex-wife who he maintained a very very probably uncomfortably close relationship with for the duration of his life Um, she kept his last name so that's one Mrs. Arthur Sackler and then he's at this point currently married to his second wife who is the second Mrs. Arthur Sackler but then he's cheating on her with a third woman who he would introduce at events as his wife and he made her legally change her name to Mrs. Arthur Sackler so She literally had their last name and he's still married to the other woman. And as opposed to just divorcing her or whatever, it's not like he didn't have the money to do it. It makes no sense. It's really weird, but it connects to the Sackler just obsession with putting their name on everything. And so the whole family, Arthur, Mortimer and Raymond all wanted to be involved in the arts and they, you know, call it philanthropy And I just don't think that fucking counts. Like, yes, donating cool shit to museums, like, is, it's just like, okay, you're rich. That's, that's a cool thing to do with your money, but it's not really a charity. Like, I mean, yeah, like kids are going there on field trips, but if you want to actually do therapy or like um, charity, then invest it in like mental health programs or like outreach or, you know, St. Jude's, Children's Cancer, everybody is, can stand against Children's Cancer. It's just like, you're not really a charity philanthropist if all you're doing is buying cool art and then trying to get on the board of the Met Museum and just all this shit. So they were really obsessed with it. And they would like frequently like have these really intense contracts to get people after making a large donation like to get a museum to put their name on it, they also had their name on Columbia University, and none of them went to Columbia. Harvard, Yale, all of this stuff, they had their name everywhere. The Sackler Wing, the Sackler Gallery, the Sackler Collection. And they even had their name on this thing in the Met called the Temple of Dender. Dender? Dender? I don't know. It's Egyptian. But um, it's literally like an ancient Egyptian temple that they transported. And he was obsessed with Chinese art um arthur was and like that was one of the main things that they were donating was um this art he was collecting and like it got to the point where his house which was very large was just like completely full of all this chinese furniture and all this art and he just spent so much money on it and uh it was kind of became an obsession and impeded on his relationships and his marriage and it was just very weird so they were big socialites And um, they were always, you know, going to these benefits and blah, 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 blah. And nobody knew what they did for work. They were very bizarre about it. Like they wouldn't tell people they wanted their name to be separate from the pharmaceutical stuff because they and that's just like admission of guilt. Right. Is not wanting people to know that feels pretty, you know, simple. Um, But they were really obsessed with their public image because of that. And super secretive. And one of the craziest things that came out of all of this was, um, for the first time in Patrick O'Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, which is where a lot of my, um, my facts and sources are coming from. I'll, I'm going to link some articles, but if you're interested in this, Empire of Pain is, absolutely insane um but he uncovered this fact that mortimer's son robert had committed suicide and the family had cut it out like um covered it up so this happened in 1975 as they're building their empire i mean they're really like into the social scene they're very wealthy at this point um and this is according to the new york post um and the Empire of Pain book. But on the morning of July 5th, 1975, a deeply troubled Robert Mortimer Sackler somehow made his way from his apartment on East 64th to his mother's home on East 86th Street. Bobby, as he was known to his family, had just turned 24 years old and was one of the heirs to the Sackler drug empire. He was um, high on heroin when this happened. He had been a heroin addict, and he wanted his... um, He wanted money from his mother. So this was all because of his heroin addiction. So when he arrived in the lobby of his mother's building on that humid Saturday morning, Bobby fought with the elevator operator. He barged into his mother's apartment where he could be heard arguing and demanding money. Moments later, he broke a window and plunged to his death. Bobby Sackler's tragic story has been buried for more than 40 years. There are no accounts of his suicide in newspapers and no public photographs of the young heir. His drug addled life was an inconvenient truth and a huge embarrassment for a family who sold drugs. And they like completely covered it up. Like there was no like, I don't even think there was a service. I mean, another disclaimer that I should probably put at the beginning of these episodes is like, I have fact checked to the best of my ability, but I, you know, read the sources I'm sending um, I'm going to put it in the description of this because they have fact checked a lot more than I have, but it's absolutely crazy. And so at the same time that all of this is happening, Arthur has the medical tribune. He's doing like, he's now in the advert pharmaceutical advertising hall of fame, something like that. But he was a very big deal and like basically pioneered direct to doctor marketing with, um, pharmaceutical drugs so at the same time he starts this thing called IMS which is a data company and you should remember this because it's going to come back up later but basically it collected all of this data about where a certain drug was being prescribed was it being prescribed to veterans was it being just prescribed to housewives what was the age of the the demographic and the areas and it like really was able to figure out who you're marketing the drugs to and so that was a very big deal and um, ends up being a very large part of the story so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back hey
1: guys you know what this playground could use a wine country huh a redwood forest would be cool ski slopes wait did we just invent california discover why california is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. snag a job is where america goes to hire
0: And we are back. Um, Okay, this we're going to talk about OxyContin's inception and how it started. So basically, Purdue Pharma had a drug called MS Contin, which is continual release morphine, and it was used almost exclusively for cancer patients and near death patients. So there wasn't a lot of studies done as to how addicting it was because it, if you have three weeks left to live, it really you're not you don't have enough time to get addicted to something and it makes you like the use of some opiates is very important especially in those situations cuz those people are in excruciating pain um but the problem is when it gets same thing gets prescribed for like a broken foot cuz it's not the same shit so as MS Cotton was, uh, they so the way that drugs work is they have a patent for a certain amount of years, and then after that patent, you can uh, sell generic drugs. So all of the medicines that I take every day have been on the market long enough that they have the generic versions, which are significantly cheaper, and it's really great for everybody when that happens. So they were running out of time on their patent of MS cotton, and you know they, were, they weren't going to be as cheap as the generic ones. That's just how that works. So they were trying to figure out a way that they could find something that would be cheaper. And so there was this old opioid that was used in the early 1900s called oxycodone. And Kath Sackler, or Kathy, it's Spelled K A T H E. I don't know who would do that to her, but well, her parents, but very difficult um, to remember how to pronounce. But she came up with this idea and she was like, hey, there's this thing called oxycodone and nobody's using it. And uh, th- it's also used in drugs like Percocet and Roxycodone, um, and it controls pain for up to six hours. But the th- difference between the regular oxycodone that was like being used and oxycontin is the same thing that was in ms cotton so ms cotton was continuous morphine so you don't have to be on a morphine drip it had a coating that would make it last for 12 hours so they took that coating and put oxycodone in it so it was very very similar to ms cotton it's just they needed something new to patent and so They said that the drug would last 12 hours, which was twice as long as generics and um, definitely at the high end of MS-Contin's range. So it came out and everyone was like, wow, this is so much better. Um, But they also theorized the 12-hour thing and it wasn't quite accurate. So their main argument was one dose released pain for 12 hours more than twice as long as generic medications. And so patients would no longer have to wake up in the middle of the night to take their pills and... One Oxycontin tablet in the morning and one before bed would provide a, quote-unquote, smooth and sustained pain control all day and all night. And, you know, if you're living with excruciating pain, as a doctor, you're like, wow, okay, so they don't have to wake up in the middle of the night in pain needing to take another pill. They can just take one in the morning and take one before bed, and it's, you know, it's easy-peasy, all done. But um, here's here's where it gets funky. So they were... At this time that this was created, which was mid-80s, um, it debuted on the market in 1996. But um, they were conducting at least a half dozen clinical trials according to the company's FDA application. And their FDA application got pushed through so quickly, like so much faster than any other drug. And it was because of this guy, Curtis Wright, who was um, a really high up at the FDA and he led the uh, medical review and approved the label that went on it, which said that, like, it may be less addictive than other opioids. And it wasn't there. There was no proof. There were no studies done. Um, it just they, they got that just by saying it. And um, spoiler alert, but Curtis Wright, uh, within two years of approving the label, went to work for fucking Purdue. So you make a lot more money in the private sector than you do working for the government. And it's really standard for like U.S. Attorney Generals um, (laughs) went to work for Purdue. All of these people in government that they met and it's like you create your buddies and they're like, oh, well, we're going to be nice to Purdue because they'll hire me and pay me, you know, a million and a half dollars a year. So during the trials, um, they did um, study after study many patients given OxyContin every 12 hours would ask for more medication before their next scheduled dose. For example, in one study of 164 cancer patients, one-third of those given OxyContin dropped out because they found the treatment, quote-unquote, ineffective. And this was an FDA analysis, so it's not like the FDA didn't have access to this information. Researchers then changed the rules of this study to allow patients to take supplemental painkillers known as, quote-unquote, rescue medication in between 12-hour doses of OxyContin. You will find that there are a lot of there's a lot of verbiage that Purdue Pharma and their salespeople will use that makes things sound a lot better than they are. And so I will say rescue medication is one of them. And in another study of eighty seven cancer patients, rescue was used frequently in most of the patients, and ninety five percent resorted to it at some point in the study, according to a journal article detailing the clinical trial. Like what the fuck, right? So, They were selling it as, like, something that you'd only have to take twice a day. But 95% of this study showed that people needed it more than then. And it's, like, an extended release drug. And so you, like, you take it's hard because you're taking more of it, but it's still only lasting eight hours. So you have that gap between eight hours and 12 hours where you're in pain. And so you're going to take it again. And then you already have a ton in your system because it's extended release. And when we take another pill on top of it. you just took double the amount and it's just crazy. So that was kind of how it got approved. And, um, they hired, Purdue pharmaceuticals hired 600 salespeople to go out and market this drug. They had no medical training or pharmaceutical degree. They had literally no, no training other than being like the hot popular kids in high school who were just friendly. Like your job was to be a salesperson in the same way that somebody who works in retail was, and you didn't have to have any experience. It was literally just hot people selling you drugs. So they, their entire job was to coax the prescriber to prescribe differently. So they're going in as uneducated people. The only thing they know about drugs is what they're being told by their employer who's trying to make money. And these un- inexperienced people are going in and talking to doctors and giving them advice. And it's just absolutely crazy. And this is still a you know practice today. However, it's just not nearly as... I mean, Purdue, like once this all came out, there's stricter rules and all that. But their main, uh, their main stuff was 12 hours up the dosage, not the frequency. So they wanted, th- they made more money off of higher dosages because, a uh, 80 milligram pill costs more than a 40 milligram pill. And so if everybody's upping their dosage, then boom, there you go. Um, so they upped the dosage, not the frequency. They would call it individualize the dosage. Uh, they handed out a bunch of free samples, encourage prescriptions for moderate issues. So times when people might have just had like... They also have a, a thing that's like Tylenol and codeine, which is a very, very, very small amount of an opioid. And that's like what would normally go to somebody with minor pain, like back pain after an injury, whatever, like stuff that's very, very painful and they need to manage. They did not need to be taking a end-of-life like morphine drug, that which is essentially what this was, especially because people build up a tolerance and got really, really like had to keep upping their dosage. And, you know, you try to find the right amount of dosage for you with any medication, but this was only going up. So, um, they like, it was all based on dollar value and, and the things that they said were, um, war on pain. And this is a direct quote Uh, from purdue avoid words like powerful which may make people think the drug is dangerous and reserved for severe pain end quote begin quote it is important that we be careful not to change the perception of physicians they totally allowed it to be like they didn't so what they didn't want to change the perceptions of was doctors thought it was weaker than morphine And so, like, morphine, if you said that in the medical community at that point, they'd be like, whoa, 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 that's for people who are dying. Like, you don't just prescribe that for back pain. But so they're, they don't, they literally directly, quote, said they don't want to change the perception of physicians that it's weaker than morphine. But, in fact, it was actually twice as strong as morphine. Twice as fucking strong. They uh, also coined the term pseudo addiction, which is not a real thing Um, and basically theorized that there's people who are addicts and then there's people who are just drug abusers and it's like mm, the same thing. Nobody really wants to be a drug addict. Nobody wants their lives to fall apart. What are you talking about? So they did a big launch after, you know, they got the word out about it and there was a really big storm in New York that day. And they're totally across the country in this like very culturally appropriative resort. And um, it was called like the wigwam or something. And like the, the prize was like it was just like very inappropriate. So they're in a sunny place, whatever. And Richard Sackler, the head of the company says the launch of Oxycontin tablets will be followed by a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. The blizzard will be so deep, dense and white that you will never see their white flag, which is kind of fucking terrifying. So, um, during this period when they were first marketing Oxycontin, they called a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand physicians, just so many. And they kept hiring more people. And, um, back to that little IMS thing, guess where they got the information of which doctor's a target? IMS, Arthur Sackler's company. Now, Arthur's dead and gone at this point, but they still had that company in the family and um, had the resource to, to use it to find where there were a lot of veterans, where there were a lot of people who worked in coal mines and had like like on-the-job injuries a lot. Um, and they would call doctors who prescribed a lot of... Opioids, whales, because if you got a doctor who was over-prescribing as a salesperson, you made a percentage of that. And they had this whole program that was incentivizing people. And um, they, Purdue Pharma, explicitly instructed sales reps to target, quote-unquote, opioid-naive doctors. So... That meant that they were seeking out doctors who knew absolutely nothing about pain management, and the only information they were going to have, similar to the salespeople, was coming from Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And there was like all this stuff floating around, like all these like infographics, and they're from like the American Pain Association. I don't know for a fact if that's the name; it's similar. I just don't want to go after a you know organization that's not that. But they would have a bunch of different names like that. And uh, if you looked on the back, like very very small print, it would say. Um, partially funded due to the generosity of the Sackler family. And nobody looked at that because you're not reading the fine print on that shit, even though now you have to. Um, So they would call in these opioid naive doctors and they also, um, they would give gifts to these doctors. Like they would give out um, like a, like a massage coupon or ask a doctor to go see an NFL game with them. I mean like they could spend money, from the company to get a doctor to start, like they'd create these bonds and these relationships and keep going to see the same doctors and keep convincing them to up the dosage. And this was like, this was standard protocol for how to sell Oxycontin. And they'd also call on doctors with suspended licenses, knowing that they got their licenses suspended because of overprescription and there's proof of that. They denied it for a really long time. They said that they had no idea that there was any sort of abuse happening um, until like 2002 and they knew like by 1997. So um, there was a crime ring who found an old doctor named Eleanor Santiago and what they would do is they would pay homeless people um, they'd pick them up on Skid Row in Los Angeles. They put them in a bus and they drop them off at this pain clinic and she was in on it. And so they would just go in, get a prescription and they'd just get, bring back the bottle of Oxy and the crime ring would just pay them to be there. And then they and they'd resell it. And in one year, Eleanor Santiago sold 73,000 pills, out of one thing, and so if there was somebody who was assigned to that region, they benefited off of that. So they're not going to say anything. Like they're not going to be like, "Hey, we think there's something sketchy going on with this this woman who's over prescribing," because they are making so much fucking money. And um, another uh, similar situation was um, in the New England area. Fathala Mathali um, was under investigation. Purdue was aware of it. They knew that he was like being sketchy with drugs and they still called him his office would have beach chairs people would wait so long in line and they knew that they could get him to prescribe them stuff and so they'd be out there in their beach chairs just waiting for for oxycontin and uh, he ended up ultimately due to um that as well as some other medical malpractice things he got sentenced to seven years in prison so he got his um and then another one is walter jacob who only worked three days a week. Like he was the only person in his practice. It was a private practice that he opened up and like only worked three days a week. And he sold 347, 347,000 pills. And, um, after they knew, they noticed that there was this whale as opposed to being like, Hey, there's probably some addiction problems going on here. Um, Purdue decided to give him $50,000 to do a speech at one of their pain conferences and they had all these conferences and they would like do them in really cool places and fly in all these doctors and like do these seminars, but they're like, you know, whatever, like the American pain association, they're called that. And it's that seminar, but it's funded by Purdue. It's owned by Purdue. They can make up as many companies as they want and they sure as hell did. So... It was, um, there was so much happening with how they marketed this. I mean, and the toppers program, as far as like their employees selling it, they would give away trips that were like all expenses paid to Hawaii. And then not to mention the poppy fields all the way in Tasmania, which is such a remote part of the world, they would be incentivizing these poppy growers and these farmers to stop growing carrots or stop growing, you know, fruit and plant poppy seeds instead because that's where they're getting the active ingredient in oxycodone which is opium and uh, they would incentivize these farmers by like giving them these massive gifts and it's so bizarre because and johnson and johnson was also involved in this too i want to give you know every everyone who should be vilified is going to be vilified in this episode but um there would be like these you know small town tasmanian farmers wearing their like you know beat up farming clothes, driving a fucking Mercedes to the field to go because they were, that's what they were getting gifted. And it's so weird. So there's like this massive influx of opulent things in Tasmania, but it's just, it's absolutely insane. There was also a very big scandal because of the, um, this program, like this, this program they did and this video that they made because of it. And it was called, I got my life back. And They were just a bunch of people that were taking Oxycontin that Purdue Pharma interviewed and they were saying things like, you know, this changed my life. I got my life back. I never used to be able to like play with my grandchildren. I never used to be able to do this because of my chronic pain. And um, the people who were in the I got my life back video ended up like one guy who was in the second one. He wasn't even taking Oxycontin at that point. He was on methadone because it was cheaper. And OxyContin got too expensive. He ended up dying in a car crash um, while... Um, presumably and allegedly, while under the influence of OxyContin, they said that he kept a box of it underneath his seat in his car. Um, another one lost lost a job and couldn't afford Oxy, and like lost her entire life, her family, and finally was able to wean herself off of it. Um, and then another person was found dead with two opioids in their system. And these are just like there's like three out of probably eight people interviewed for this, and and who knows what happened to the other people. But I got my life back. Video is a complete joke because they literally lost their lives because of this drug that they were being told was to save them.
1: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire
0: Okay, so that is how this all got big. This was the crescendo, and then this is when the crisis starts. So this is when people are looking around and realizing that all of the... If you had a a map where high concentrations of OxyContin prescriptions were in the country, and it was like red for the higher areas, and then you put a clear map over it that had the places that had the highest concentration of Oxycontin overdoses and addiction um, and methadone clinics, you, it's the same hotspots. And also an important thing to know is every single Oxycontin pill that was on the market, on the black market being sold on the street came from Purdue. So they profited off of all of that. They made so much money off of all of that because like it all had to start somewhere. No one was illegally making Oxycontin. There was really no way to do it. And, uh, it, it had a higher, you couldn't have, um, other drugs that had a 180 milligrams, which that one ended up getting pulled off the, off the market because of, you know, um, the fact that it's too much. Um, but all you had to do was suck off the coating to get into the Oxycontin. And so people were crushing it, snorting it. It became a huge, huge, huge problem in my home state of Maine. And, um, Jay McCloskey, who was the main state attorney general at that point, he was the first person to blow the whistle and say hey, there's this horrible opioid crisis going on and um, you know people are dying, whatever, advocating. And if you guys have listened to my podcast before, you know I have a sister who died of a um, heroin overdose and the first time she went to prison, she was um, on OxyContin and that was what got her into it. She was like a very normal, intelligent, girl with friends and went to a a private Baptist school and, um, just was like thriving. And then she started dating this guy and got into fucking Oxy because people were like, I mean, I have to be honest, like I've been at parties and stuff. And like, you know, if, if somebody offers you an Adderall to stay awake, like that's like, not, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't take drugs. that aren't prescribed to you, but like, that's not a, like, crazy occurrence like that happens at a lot of college parties and a lot of parties I've been doing it's like hey whatever and so you're thinking like well this is a legal drug like how bad can it be and you're just taking a party drug and same like people take xanax at parties too and like but this is like one that kills you it can kill you the first time you take it like it's absolutely crazy so you know people are thinking it's safe because it's medicine and it's just absolutely not so you get people who are vulnerable and you know just I mean my sister was like Nineteen twenty, just at a party, I assume, and um, so Jay McCloskey brings the alarm for Maine. And um, another spoiler alert: he fucking went to work for Purdue, and he was the first person he knew that people were dying. He knew, and all of this is happening at the exact same time that my sister's getting addicted to oxycontin. So I'm a uh, really pissed about that shit. If I could, if I met that guy, I'd probably punch him in the face. Um, they had this slogan that they would say to you know like the company and it became like this attitude they were focusing on pseudo addiction saying like well this person isn't really addicted you just have to up their dosage which is crazy to be like they're not addicted to that just give them more of it makes no sense um but they would say it's a direct quote from Richard Sackler the head of the company um, he would say, abusers aren't victims. They are the victimizers. And he also said, I believe the media has nefariously cast the drug abuser as the victims instead of a victimizer. And he was very, very um, opinionated on that. And they were just drinking their own Kool-Aid and like completely, completely just i buried their head in the sand, lied to themselves. Maybe they weren't lying to themselves and they were just like pure fucking evil. But, I mean, they just created this thing where they were all reinforcing each other's beliefs that there was nothing wrong going on. And so there's a woman named Marianne Skolik. She was a nurse and a mom to Jill Skolik, who was on Oxycontin for four months and ended up overdosing on a legal prescription a completely legal prescription and she left behind her six year old son. And, um, she talked to somebody at Purdue about it. Cause she got Ma- Marianne got very involved in like outreach and, and awareness and trying to get justice. And she's just, I mean, a absolutely amazing woman. And, um, what Robin Hogan, who was in the Purdue, uh, publicity department said to her, to her face, he said, you misunderstood. The drug wasn't the problem. We think she abused drugs. Like, Oh no, 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 no. Our medicine didn't do that. Your daughter was a drug addict and it's like, no, she had a, had a accident and they gave her Oxycontin for four months, which is like technically by, you know, the medical understanding of opioids, like that's actually not a super inappropriate amount of time to be on an opioid for pain. Like it's when they were trying to sell people on it to use it for years. Like that's not how it's supposed to be used, but four months, that's like nothing People are recovering from surgeries for four months all the time, and it just tells you how fucked up their drug was. So, it, Purdue had so much to gain from, from addiction, and I think that they just dehumanized these people because they didn't want to have to deal with it, and they didn't want it on their conscience. And so, they had these pill mills with the whale doctors. There was one in Myrtle Beach, and during the quarter that that pill mill started going, they uh, they got $1 million an extra revenue out of nowhere, just popped up. And they're like, oh, well, look at another million dollars. And all of it was going to the fucking black market. Like very, I mean, I would, this is a hard statistic to get, but like, I mean, I'd love to know what percentage of those people actually needed it. And some people are getting it and selling it. Like they're not even using the prescriptions themselves. Like you have addicts, obviously who are going in there, but it's just crazy. And they were sold that this drug wasn't addictive. So another example of somebody who started, who was suffer, suffered, from the, um, opioid crisis was a woman named Martha West. And Martha West was a assistant at Purdue pharmaceuticals. She was really involved in the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, she was one of the first people to notice that there was addictive qualities to it. And they were like, no, you can't say that. Delete your emails. Um, and she, uh, ended up, she ended up, um, like testifying against them because she got in a car accident and went on oxy and her life just fell apart. She ended up, they did, um, we're going to talk more about this next, but they did a trial and, um, they, they were getting, you know, pursued charges, charges were getting pursued against Purdue and Martha was going to testify and she'd agreed to testify in front of a grand jury. And, um, they ended up, she ended up not showing up to the trial for her testimony and she, um, they found her in the emergency room of a local hospital begging for pills. And this woman's life was destroyed by Oxycontin, both because she worked for the company and they fired her because of her addiction. Um, and because she got addicted to the exact same exact thing that she was part of selling. So this is where things start to go downhill for the Zackler family. Um, there was a memo to Martha West, the, um, secretary who got addicted and was going to go to testify um, about addiction in 1999. And they tried to say that they hadn't heard anything. And so this um, case goes from 2002 to 2008 and they were like, Oh yeah, we, we'd never heard anything until like 2002. And they're like, no, no, we found 1999. And then they end up finding 1997 earlier. Um, and they had such a horrible attitude about it because as people like Jay McCloskey were blowing the whistle on this, they, uh, were very, um, you know, there was bad press happening, and they would try to combat it by like calling people and delegitimizing the journalists. And so one guy named Barry Meyer, like, almost lost his job because he wrote this expose, and then he ended up being completely right. And he wrote a, some really great stuff about this. He's so passionate, and he got to be there for the trial because um, they were like, "Yo, this guy deserves to see them go down." Um, so even on a day like September eleventh, two thousand one. There was an email sent within the Purdue Car- Pharma company, and it said, 9-11 is a very tragic day, but at least it will take Oxycontin out of the headlines. And that tells you everything they, you need to know about their opinion on the fucking value of a human life. So by 2002, they had spent 45 million dollars in fighting off lawsuits with no trial or restitution. That was all just paying their attorneys. Like they did not pay, they didn't pay anybody off. They didn't settle. They didn't go to trial. They literally just like scared these people off, and would use like intimidation and bullying tactics. And um, Howard Udell was their main lawyer, and he was a really prominent part of the company. And he was told that there was no limit on the legal budget, so they had 18 in-house attorneys. And that cost them $3 million a month. And then they hired these really powerful ones like Eric Holder, who was a deputy attorney general for the U S and then Mary Jo White, uh, who was a former U S attorney. And then they also, um, got the, like they had Rudy Giuliani running around advocating for them. And, uh, they had all these powerful people in government who were like trying to be like, yeah, no, don't pursue this case. And these, um, these state attorney generals ended up doing it anyways. And so there's these really, really great guys, John Brownlee, Rick Mountcastle, and um, Mr. Ramsayer. I forgot to write down his first name. My bad. Um, but they, they're they covered in the TV show Dope Sick, and they fought relentlessly to fight Purdue Pharmaceuticals. They made a request. They like got a subpoena for all of their internal documents, and Purdue shows up with, like, Eight trucks full of shit, and that's a, I think it's called blizzarding, but that's a legal tactic. So when somebody, like, asks for evidence in there, you know, you get a subpoena. You turn every fucking thing in, knowing that they like it would take them years to get through all of it, and it totally did. And so, Ramsayer was so like, it's so focused and so is Rick Mountcastle specifically. And um they would set an alarm for four AM to send a fax so that Purdue would think that they had a large team of people working around the clock on it. So he'd set alarms for random times and just like send them shit. And uh it was just like the three of them and then some people in their office. So it was um pretty crazy, but the sacklers around this time were stepping down because they like from their positions in the company now they kept doing the jobs like Richard Sackler still ended up being like acting president CEO trying to do everything he was a huge micromanager everybody hates this guy everyone who's worked for him except the people that he's paid millions of dollars to shut the fuck up so those those people like him but he was like we should step down we want to keep our name out of it again they're like obsessed with the Sackler name so they're like we don't want to taint it and we don't want to have any felony charges brought against us so um attorney uh, John Brownlee, he pursues felony charges. And, um, after, uh, John Brownlee was asked by somebody in the uh, justice department to not pursue them. And like, still to this day, nobody knows who sent that directive. It was like really like backdoor shit. And like, was it the head of the, like, it's just crazy. So somebody, they had a fucking mole in there who was advocating for Purdue. And, um, he John Brownlee was told not to pursue them, and he was like, "No, fuck you! I'm going to do it because they can't like, they can't make you not pursue them, but they can threaten you." And so, uh, a week later, he found a list of attorneys to be fired because of loyalty, and he was on it. And they were saying like they weren't loyal to the Bush administration or like some bullshit or whatever. And um, he ended up not getting fired because all of this came to light, and they were like, "Oh, somebody was going behind." everyone's backs and trying to advocate for purdue and um john brownley did not he could have just been like yep all right never mind we won't bring felony charges we'll just do misdemeanors whatever but he was so committed to the cause and he was even offered like essentially offered bribes like he knew he could get a job at purdue and make millions of dollars millions more than he was making he knew that he he wanted to run for president one day and he like that would have really helped him he could have had these powerful people on his side and he was like no not going to do it. So this ends up happening with, uh, the company. They also had Purdue Frederick, which is the same thing as Purdue, but that's where they kept, they put Oxycontin into Purdue and they put the laxatives and, um, earwax removers that the company came with originally into Purdue Frederick. So they're all owned by the same people, ran by the same thing, but technically different entities. So, um, the only people that they could charge were The only people that they could charge were not members of the Sackler family because remember they'd all stepped down. So they uh, ended up three people, including Howard Udell, ended up pleading guilty. Um, they were forced to pay $600 million. The all three executives got three years of probation and 400 hours of community service. The Sacklers gave them tons of fucking money. So even though these guys couldn't work, they could—they weren't allowed to do anything that had anything to do with Medicare, which would have, or like any subsidized healthcare program. And so that would mean that like OxyContin couldn't be covered and so people would stop taking it. And they were like, oh, well, we'll just put this to for Purdue Frederick. We'll let Purdue Frederick dissolve will take those products and put them under Purdue. And so like nobody even like, it, it was basically a speeding ticket and at the trial, it was very, very emotional. Um, there was a woman who brought her son's ashes and, uh, the whole thing with Martha West who was supposed to be there. Um, and it's just fucking, it's just fucking crazy. And so, after all of this, what they did was they were like, we're going to reformulate this. And they made it harder to, and nearly impossible to crush and, and snort and all of that. And so, um, well, people are already addicted. What are they going to do? Um, they're going to find something to substitute for it. And it's, they got more and more expensive as well. And I mean, like, I think a one pill was like between 80 and a hundred dollars or something crazy like that. Like it was tons of money and heroin is very cheap. Um, so after the reformulation that made it harder to abuse the drug, which they could have done from the very beginning, they had the technology to do it, but they knew that they were making money off of the addicts in those pill mill areas. Um, so they, after they reformulated it, the sales of the highest dosage went down 25%. So, re- the reformulation, the only people it affected were people who were abusing it. So, sales of the highest dosage went down 25%, which tells you that a quarter of all people who were using the highest dosage were abusing it. Um, then there was a rise, this all happened around 2010, and um, there was a rise in heroin overdoses. Four out of five people who overdosed on heroin that year had started with prescription opioids. Four out of five. And it has been shown now that there's been more and more studies done that 25% of users become addicted or overdose on Oxycontin. And there was this one story I read in the Empire of Pain book that, um, there was a, there was a doctor, um, who they went to visit. Somebody went to a small town and there was a picture of the high school football team and he was like, literally half of those guys are either dead from Oxycontin or like in rehab right now. Half of the football team. I mean, this place hit small areas hard. It hit Appalachia. It hit Maine. It hit Virginia. It hit all these places and it was just like, I mean, it ended up taking over the whole country. I mean, but there was a, in 2016 in Ohio, 20% of the population had been prescribed Oxycontin. And that's not even 20% of the adult population. That is 20% of the entire population have been prescribed Oxycontin. And uh, 50% of Ohio's foster care in 2016, 50% of those children had parents who were addicted to opioids. And Purdue knew that this was happening. They also made an argument. They were like, well, Johnson & Johnson's doing it too, and we're only 4% of the marketplace. But what they did was they counted that kind of Tylenol codeine stuff I was telling you about earlier, which is a very, very, very low dosage of opioid. Like it's basically, I mean, it's for severe pain, but it's nothing like it's nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so they were counting that. And there was a lot of that because, I mean, it's like you have a surgery, you get this and it's got a little bit of opioid in it because you're gonna be in a lot of pain. So they made up 4% of that marketplace. Um, but then when you adjust it to potency, they made up 30%. And then then it comes out that they, they had all these fucking weird little companies running around like they, they were always like sketchy and had all these different things that were entangled and there's even more to Arthur's story that I didn't have time to go into but um, they own this company called Rhodes Pharma which made generic opioids they started it right after the guilty plea um, of the f- like where they had to um, plead at the trial and it was bigger than Johnson and Johnson and they also, would make the point that like, well, oxycontin isn't abused. It's oxycodone because it's an immediate high. And like, that's true. But oxycontin was the only way you could get that many milligrams in one pill. And so, um, but they would make that argument like vilifying oxycodone and Rhodes Pharma made oxycodone. And they had this company set up so that they could sell a generic version of oxycontin as soon as the patent was up. So they like secretly owned this company and it was the sixth largest opioid um, distributor in the United States. And nobody knew that it was also Purdue. So the whole 4% thing is fucking bullshit. They are able to manipulate any math they want. They also had a bunch of ideas for like how they could go forward. Cause they're like, okay, well, you know, it's 2016 people think Oxycontin sucks. Like what can we do? And, um, pay, like places like CVS, like there's drugstores who stopped carrying it because there were so many break-ins and people stealing stuff and like gunpoint shit. And, um, but they, Purdue needed them to keep carrying the drug, just like they needed insurance companies to keep covering it. So they came up with this idea. They're like, okay, we're going to offer rebates of $14,000 for overdoses associated with OxyContin. But we're not going to pay them out to the families who lost, who lost the person. We're not going to pay for funeral costs. We're going to offer them to drugstores and insurance companies so that they'll keep prescribing our, our drug. And that didn't end up happening, but like, that's where these people's minds were like absolutely crazy shit. And then another one of their amazing ideas was they were going to reformulate, they were trying to extend the patent. So they were going to secure a new one to extend the length of it because they were going to test it on children and make Oxycontin for children. Um, and then they'd be able to patent that further. And it's like, absolutely insane and that didn't end up happening either but again it tells you where their heads at and then for their third um genius idea that didn't happen um one of the sacklers had a great idea for a thing called project tango and what does tango mean tango means two things dancing together two things working together right and uh when you're in a tango with something it's like you're you're working at the same thing and you're dancing together so project tango they were like you know what we should do we should get into the um the addiction space like we should make an alternative to methadone and we should you know really get into that space we can make money blah blah blah." and so it's like okay so you're gonna give the addicts you're gonna create the addiction and then you're gonna try to fix the addiction and you're gonna profit off of both as in project fucking tango and it's crazy and um I there's so much more to say about this story but I like they have quote unquote been brought to justice the case that's happening right now like their names have been taken off museums and all that but there was this one quote that um this author named Ryan Hampton who's actually in recovery from opioid addiction said and this is just the best way to sum it up um, this family will walk off into the sunset with their wealth. When they're done paying the settlement after nine years, there's a model out there. It shows that they'll actually be richer based on their investments and interest rates that they have. So I could tell you all the details of what happened to them with this current like, but they filed bankruptcy, so they're not going to pay any of the settlement. Um, the Sacklers have nothing to do with it, so they can't touch their money and they've like, they could still go after them with felony charges, I believe, but it's a complicated thing. And really all you need to know is that they got rich and they're going to get richer. And, um, yeah, I just, um, obviously this is really close to my heart with my sister passing away from a heroin overdose and, you know, watching her life slowly slip like slip away because of her addiction to these pills and um it's just really fucked up but there's a great book like I was telling you called Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden O'Keefe and I highly recommend that it's a heavy read but it's it's just fascinating like every page it's just like Game of Thrones shit you forget that you're reading a true story and then there's a TV show called Dope Sick it just came out on Hulu and it is incredibly factual like I read the book and then um and they're based on different things like dope sick is based on a book called Dopesick. but i just finished reading empire of pain and then i was like oh let me watch dope sick and it's like all the same shit like to the point where they're using the same dialogue because um patrick's book has a 60 page bibliography and it's like references depositions and recorded phone calls and emails and so it's like it, they're you the parts of the script are exact things that were said so it's absolutely insane. But, um, yeah, this is something that's really close to my heart. Thank you guys for sticking through this one. I know this is a really long episode, but it's one I've been preparing for a really long time. And, um, there's so much more I could say about this, but I kind of wanted to talk about the the corruption there because that's the crime aspect. And, um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Kaylee Shore and this is too much to say.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.